This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. If you go to Pripyat or other small towns in northern Ukraine and Belarus, you'll find them empty. They're ghost towns, and they have been since 1986, when a reactor exploded at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. It released over 100,000 pounds of radioactive material into the atmosphere, and that dispersed really all across Europe and the USSR at the time. That's Kara Love. She's a biologist and postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University. She told me the most heavily contaminated area is right around the reactor. That whole region was evacuated by all the human inhabitants. Over 100,000 people from over 200 different villages. And that's what we reference to as the CEZ. Or the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. Kara's been to the Belarus portion of the Exclusion Zone for research. When she went, she had to wear a dosimeter to monitor the radiation exposure and to make sure she didn't go anywhere too radioactive. So I'm mostly in smaller abandoned towns. Villages that still have cars in the driveways or they still have books on the bookshelves within the homes. There's still shoes near the front doors. When people were evacuated, a lot of them were told they could come back. Most of their belongings are untouched. But now... The vines are crawling through the windows. Some have trees from the floor that are growing up through the roof in the center of the house at this point. But perhaps some of the most remarkable or memorable interactions of the homes and the wildlife is that you sometimes see a boar's nest or where a boar has spent the night with its babies. Within the CEZ, evolutionary biologist Shane Campbell Staten says there's an entire functional ecosystem. Everything from amphibians, insects, and birds to, you know, megafauna, so things like European bison, boar, apex predators like wolves. So Shane mentions wolves. The wolves are particularly interesting here. As the apex predators, wolves would theoretically be hit hardest by the Chernobyl radiation. They're eating the radioactive deer that's eating the radioactive plants. And all that radiation exposure builds as you climb up the food chain. Gray wolves offer a really interesting uh, opportunity to understand uh, the impacts of, sort of chronic, low-dose, multi-generational exposure uh, to ionizing radiation because of the role that they play in their ecosystems. Kara's a postdoc in Shane's lab, and she approached Shane with this wolf problem because of one shocking fact. So wolves within the Chernobyl exclusion zone have been estimated to actually be about seven times as dense as populations in other protected areas within Belarus. The wolves are thriving, and no one knows why. Today on the show, the mystery of how gray wolves survived decades of radiation and took back Chernobyl. I'm Regina Barber, and you're listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR. Hi. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat oat milk or visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. When Kara approached Shane about these gray wolves in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, she just wanted to know the basics. How much radiation are individuals exposed to? Are these levels significantly higher than regions outside of the exclusion zone, which we found that they are extremely significantly higher. But from there, they had a bigger question in mind. As an evolutionary biologist, the very first question in my mind was whether or not this radiation was enough of a stressor to actually be a selective pressure. Was the radiation from Chernobyl driving natural selection and triggering the gray wolf population to evolve in ways that would protect it from radiation? There may be genetic variation um, within the population that may allow some individuals um, to be more resistant or resilient uh, in the face of that radiation, in which case they may still get cancer at the same rate um, but it may not impact their function as much as it would you know, an individual outside of the exclusion zone. They're just able to take that burden better for some reason. Uh, or it could be resistance. right? And despite that pressure, that, that radiation exposure, they just don't get cancer as much. Shane and Kara hypothesized that over the past few decades, the gray wolves with the genes that allowed them to withstand the radiation have been able to survive where the others have died off. And those are the wolves procreating and passing on those genes. Basically, the population is rapidly evolving. But to know for sure, they had to get into the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Nowadays, the zone is a lot safer with proper protective equipment. Some people have even moved back to live there. A lot of the people that were evacuated had a really um, strong stigma attached to them, and many of them just wanted to go home, you know? They wanted to go to the land that their family had been on for quite some time. In the small villages around Belarus, Karen and her team had developed a wolf collar that had a dosimeter built into it to measure how much radiation the wolves are exposed to. They also do genetic blood testing on the wolves. So we're looking at blood cell composition because there's lots of different immune blood cells that circulate within our body and they can be indicative of different types of stress or disease. So by counting the number of different immune cells within an individual, we're able to identify some signature of radiation stress within the Chernobyl wolves. 
And we've also explored many different uh, parasite and pathogen infections within this population compared to reference populations trying to get at disease rates. For reference populations, Karen Shane looked at two other sets of gray wolves, one in another protected area of Belarus outside of the CEZ and one much further away in Yellowstone National Park. Really what we're interested in is trying to identify regions of the genome that seem to be diverging much faster in Chernobyl than they are elsewhere. So if you have a population that is exposed to a particular pressure, comparing it to several other populations that aren't exposed uh, to that pressure gives you an idea of where that selection might be happening in the genome, which genes you know, may be uh, changing uh, in response to that selection. In other words, Shane and Kara are hoping to identify the genes that have allowed these gray wolves to withstand the radiation and all of its bad health effects. So what, what did you find then? What were the, the small differences, if there were any? So in general, we found that the fastest evolving regions within Chernobyl are in and around genes that we know have uh, some role in cancer immune response um, or the anti-tumor immune response in, uh, in mammals. Cancer is one of the biggest health impacts of the radiation from Chernobyl. In the area after the accident, there were at least 1,800 documented cases of thyroid cancer in kids under 15. That's a lot higher than normal. And Kara says that extends to other life in the CEZ. Dogs within Chernobyl have higher cancer rates than dogs outside of Chernobyl. And if we extrapolate that into the wolf population, we can assume that they might have higher cancer rates, but they've also possibly um, show higher resilience within these genes that we find that are under selection. So the detrimental impacts of that cancer, even if it does exist within the population, may not be as strong. The major question that we had was, is there selection happening? Our data clearly show that there is a genetic component you know, and a significant and strong genetic component. That does not mean that the entire story is based around genetics. This might be why the wolf population is thriving. After generations of developing a resilience or resistance to cancer, they're now successful apex predators in an area once devoid of much other life. But Shane says, even if natural selection is at play here, there's another big factor at play. The other thing is humans aren't there, right? A wolf within the Chernobyl exclusion zone, it may have to deal with pressures from cancer, but it doesn't have to deal with pressures from, say, hunting. And uh, it may be that the release from that hunting pressure, that separation from humans, turns out to be a much better thing than having to deal with cancer, which is kind of messed up. So when you think about that initial conundrum, why is the wolf population in Chernobyl estimated to be seven times denser than in other areas? It's hard to know exactly why. Maybe wolves with cancer-resistant or resilient genes are naturally selected. Maybe they just don't need to worry about humans. Karen and Shane say it's probably a bit of both. 
but they hope to take more trips to the CEZ to figure this out. And they also think that if they're able to identify the genes responsible for this cancer resilience or resistance in wolves, it could inform human cancer treatments. We have started collaborating with cancer biologists and cancer companies to help us to interpret these data and to try to figure out if there are any directly translatable differences that may offer like novel therapeutic targets for cancer in humans, for instance. Since the war in Ukraine started nearly two years ago, Shane and Kara have put a pause on their research. And unfortunately, right now, you know, with the war and everything going on in the region, we aren't able to get back out to be able to ask directly. Um, what's happening in the region now is obviously far more important than research at the moment. So priorities are where they should be, I think. So I think we're used to evolution being slow, right? Like a gradual process. But is that still true? That is, I think, one of the major things that has, I think, fundamentally shifted in the Anthropocene, the age of of humans. It's like, we don't do anything just a little bit, right? Anytime we impact the environment, we do it in a big way, which creates very strong selection pressures. Unfortunately, that strength of selection, like the more a population changes due to selection, the greater a toll it takes because evolutionary response to selection comes at a cost and that cost is death. The stronger the response is, the more individuals that had to die in order to get that response. Both Shane and Kara have been thinking about this a lot. Shane's lab studies how human activity has triggered evolutionary change. These gray wolves are only one example of that. There are going to be a lot of changes that happen in a very short period of time. You know, and the pace and magnitude of that change, you know, if we look back through the history of life on this planet, um, I mean, it can only be equivalent to the five major mass extinction events that um, that the planet has experienced in the past. So to think of us as a destructive force, you know, equivalent to, you know, the, at, the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs, you know, it sort of puts in perspective both the power of what it means to be human, but also, you know, the sort of responsibility to wield that power in a way that is, isn't destructive. The CEZ has transformed rapidly over the last few decades. Think about a place like Pripyat. Almost 40 years ago, it was this small city of about 50,000. Then it became a radioactive ghost town. And now, it's somewhere in between. It's a home base for boars and wolves and some people who have managed to find their way back. All of its residents are at the whims of a rapidly changing world, just trying to keep up. This episode was produced by Margaret Serino and edited by our showrunner, Rebecca Ramirez. It was fact-checked by Britt Hansen. Josh Newell was the audio engineer. I'm Regina Barber. Thank you for listening to Shortwave from NPR.
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.